Passover was supposed to be this time of celebration, this time of remembering what God had done for his people, the Israelites, as he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and carried them through the desert into the promised land. It was supposed to be this, this time, this ritual meal of rejoicing and singing where every element pointed to some attribute of God and, and was full of worship. And on top of that, Jesus had just come into Jerusalem like a king on a donkey uh, ascending to the throne and the throngs of people came out exalting him as their king, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This, this mysterious prophet, this wise sage who had challenged the religious elite, who stood up for the poor and the oppressed and who had literally raised people from the dead. I mean, this was his moment. And this meal was supposed to be this time of like rejoicing, remembering everything that they had done together. Just this inner circle of the disciples in an, in an undisclosed location and, and getting pumped up looking at what was to come. But something was off. Something was very, very wrong, according to the disciples. You can imagine them kind of lounging around the table as they did at that place and time. The table was low to the ground, the food spread out on the table, and instead of singing, there was silence. And in the, the light of just maybe a couple candles or lanterns in that room, Jesus looked different than they had ever seen him in their three years of following him. You know, he should have been something like, uh, uh, like a presidential candidate who just won the primary, right? And, and was getting them all pumped up. But instead, John 13 tells us he was deeply disturbed. He was distressed. He was agitated about something. And instead of a victorious kind of politician, what he sounded like was a father who was about to go to war and was giving final instructions to his children. And with dread in his voice, he said, one of you is going to betray me. He said, the world is not going to get you. It's going to hate you. You're going to be in danger. But don't worry, I'm going to send an advocate, a helper, to be with you. Oh, by the way, I'm leaving. <laughs> and where I'm going, you can't come with me. What? what? How... How could the, the Jesus movement, the messianic movement that Jesus started, continue without Jesus? What were the disciples supposed to do? Suddenly, the future that they thought they understood shifted beneath their feet, and no one knew what was coming. You ever felt that? That uncertainty? It, it feels like a weight in the pit of your stomach when you don't know what is about to happen. And nobody knows what's about to happen right now. You know, it started uh, four months ago with the pandemic uh, that surprised us all and, and changed the course of our economy and, and our business and our day-to-day -day lives, our school, our work, all of that. And, and it quickly turned into fear of an economic slowdown, a recession that has affected many of us in our community very personally. And then there was this grotesque display of systemic racism that ended the life of 
one man and, and pointed us, re reminded us of how many other African-American men and women have been hurt. And that erupted into all sorts of hatred and vitriol and, and political divisiveness. No one right now knows what's coming. And that was the last few months. And even in the last few days, right here in Madison, we've had an 18-year-old woman, African-American woman, stop at a red light and get sprayed with lighter fluid and then have a, a lighter thrown at her. Thank God she was able to put the fire out. But this is happening. We had a senator who was just attacked on the steps of our state capitol. What's going on? No one seems to know what is about to happen. And this is the feeling we call uncertainty. Uncertainty. So uncertainty is this feeling that we get when we don't know what's coming. Uh, Kevin Anschell, who's a clinical psychologist, writes, the fear of the unknown is possibly the most fundamental fear of human beings because we're hardwired to avoid uncertainty. The more prolonged the anxiety is that comes from uncertainty, the more likely it is to manifest itself as depression, which is characterized by a loss of interest in things. It looks like hopelessness and helplessness. It's this feeling, and maybe these words have even come out of your mouth in the last couple of weeks. It's this feeling of, I'm done. I'm just done. I'm done with all of this. I'm done with the pandemic. I'm done with racism. I'm done with the politics. I'm done with social media. I'm done with constantly having to worry about money. I'm done with Zoom meetings. I'm done with online church. And so a lot of us have been numbing this feeling or, or distracting ourselves from it with alcohol and food and binge watching. And some of us have gotten just completely absorbed in the 24-hour news cycle or into our own political talking head of choice or our own show of choice. But Jesus invites us to a better way of dealing with our uncertainty. And it's through prayer. And we read about this better way in John chapter 17. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn it to there. I'm just going to start in the first verse. He said, uh, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ. Eternal life, Jesus prays. Or another way to put it is life the way it was meant to be. Or as we call it, the Christian life. That this is, this comes from knowing God. It's very simple. Eternal life equals knowing God. That's what Jesus is praying here. And what we realize here is that there is a kind of knowledge in the Bible. Uh, well, there are separate, several kinds of knowledge. One kind of knowledge talks about what we know and what we understand. And the way we describe this in our kind of late modern Western vocabulary is like the light bulb turned on or I finally wrapped my mind around this or it just finally made sense. And what we're talking about is an intellectual assent to a proposition. So we're talking about understanding something and that is in the Bible. But this, what Jesus is talking about is a very different kind of knowing. It's not an intellectual knowing, it's an experiential knowing. It's the difference between reading a Wikipedia article about the properties of water and taking a dive into the ocean to discover it 
for yourself. One uh, biblical lexicon talks about this kind of knowing, describes it as a knowledge that is frequently about personal relationship. And we talk about having a personal relationship with God in our Christian circles all the time. But what does that mean when you can't see him? I mean, it's a fundamentally different kind of relationship that you can have with someone that you can see and you can touch and you can hug. So what we realize here is that prayer is not uh, this exercise of like conjuring up this feeling of faith and just kind of squinting and maybe pretending that God is out there somewhere listening. No, it's actually uh, a conviction. It's a conviction that there is a deeper reality that goes beyond just what we see. It's truer than something our senses can uh, interpret for us. It's, and it comes from a personal experience with the Spirit of God. Uncertainty is healed, according to Jesus, by knowing God. Not, not by understanding Him, by knowing Him. So we're going to look at what Jesus teaches us about talking to a God we can't see, about healing our uncertainty. Uh, Michael Reeves, who wrote this very short book on prayer called Enjoy Your Prayer Life, wrote, Prayer is the primary way true faith expresses itself. And here's what this means. It means that not praying, prayerlessness, is practical atheism. It's not believing that you can know this God through prayer, which leads to eternal life or life as it's meant to be. So this message is called How to Talk to a God You Can't See. And our approach is going to be simple. We're just going to look at two verses in John chapter 17, which is this magnificent prayer. The whole chapter is a prayer of Jesus, which is crazy when you think about it, because this is God talking to God. So we're like looking at Jesus's phone and reading his text messages between him and God. It's incredibly personal. And we're going to discern uh, how to talk to a God we can't see by asking two questions. Number one, what kind of God are we talking to? And number two, what does it mean to know him? And then we're going to give some practical steps at the end. So with John chapter 17 open, let's look at verse five. It says, and now, Father, so this is Jesus praying, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So two things to understand. The first thing is glory. So the Bible that Jesus read is what we call the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And the word for glory there is chavod. Uh, and chavod, uh, in his most basic meaning, just means like weightiness or, or um, uh, importance or impact, uh, heaviness. It, it talks about the effect that someone has on their environment, especially someone who is very important. So if we were to turn back to Exodus chapter 24, when God was uh, talking to the Israelite people and showing his glory, we would read, that um, the chavod, the, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in sight of all the people of Israel. See, it's, it's what happens 
where God is, his glory. And, and people can have chavod. In, in the Bible, we, we read about kings who put all of their glory and their honor on display with their chariots and their weapons and things like that. So a, a recent, like really tangible uh, example of this is my wife and I went on a lunch date months ago before all of this crazy stuff started. And, and uh, we were in downtown Madison. And we didn't know this at the time, but Mike Pence, our vice president, was in town. He was at the Capitol. And there were blockades everywhere. Like traffic was literally being reshaped in the city. Uh, there were helicopters patrolling the air. There were armed guards on most of the street corners. And you knew without even reading the news or, or knowing what was going on, you knew someone important was there because of the effect that, that was taking place in the environment. That's what chavod is. And in the New Testament, particularly in John's gospel, the word for glory, the Greek word, uh, is doxa. So in John 1.14, uh, the beginning of John's gospel, uh, he writes, uh, the, the word, who is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his doxa, the doxa as of the Son of God, the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. And when he did miracles, John tells us that those were displays of his doxa, his glory that are meant to, to cause people to trust in him. And Jesus says that um, he doesn't need us for doxa. So this is an interesting thing because in Christian circles, we think about like singing to God or praising him or whatever. Like that's how God gets Glory And actually, Jesus says in John uh, 5:41, "I don't receive my doxa from people." In John chapter 8:45, he says, uh, "Even if I glorify myself, my glory, my doxa is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me. It's my Father who gives me doxa. And here's what Jesus is telling us. He's telling us that glory, true glory comes from the fountainhead of all glory, which is the Father. Which means that, that, that the Father is sharing his glory with the Son, Jesus. See, you and I, we grew up and we were taught either implicitly or explicitly to be glory grabbers. We're taught to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're taught to work hard. We're taught to make a name for ourselves, to take what is ours to take. And we do that in all sorts of ways, through careerism or through our sexual identities and on all sorts of ways. But the glory of Jesus comes from God because real glory is glory that's given. So God, like who is this God that we're talking to? He's not a glory grabber. He's a glory giver. He's a glory giver. And what this means, is, guys, is we have to, when we pray, we have to expand our prayer list to pray for God's glory. I mean, God's glory is what makes him known on earth. And we're meant to glorify God, not just with our words and our prayer and through our worship, what we do in a church building or, or as we sing along to worship songs. We're called to glorify God in our bodies, in our lives, in our work, in our hobbies. Or as Paul writes, in everything you do, do it unto the glory of God. We have to include glory in our prayerless. Because the more you and I become like Jesus, which is our destiny, 
as Christians, the more we glorify him and the more we make his presence known on earth. When's the last time you prayed for God to glorify himself through you, through your life? I mean, Jesus was praying that here. How much more should we? So the first uh, word in this verse was glory. I want to show you another phrase. Um, And the next part won't be as long as this, I promise you. But he said uh, in verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, hold on. What is he talking about before the world began? See, there's a question that we don't often ask because it kind of feels maybe philosophical or hypothetical or maybe a, a question that a child would ask. And here it is. What was God doing before this all existed? What was God doing before creation? And it really matters. So let me explain why. See, a lot of us, we pray to God as a creator or we pray to God as a ruler. So we ask him to like heal us or provide for us or maybe change someone's heart or or something or give wisdom, something like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're all for that here at Door Creek Church. But if we only pray to God as a creator and as a ruler, what we're saying basically is, is God needs a creation. He needs something to rule in order to be who he is. A creator has to have a creation in order to be a creator. A ruler has to have something they're in charge of in order to be a ruler. So does God need us? Like, does he need us to be who he is? Well, no, he doesn't. So when Jesus said, uh, well, let me read it again. He said, um, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He's saying that there was something before there was a creation and there was something to rule, that God was already fully who he is and that creation and his kingdom are just extensions of that. So you may say, well, God is love, right? So he loved before there's creation. See, that requires an object of love. You, ha- you can't love without having, like sharing and giving love with, with somebody. So what Jesus is telling us is that before what you and I call reality existed, that the world that we live in and the people we interacted, that there was a deeper reality. There's a more fundamental reality, and that is a divine Trinitarian community of love. There's a community of love. That's the fabric that weaves all of reality together, and it existed before we were here. And if you've been around the church for a while, you may go, oh yeah, that is, um, that's that stained glass word, uh, Trinity, that I haven't taken off the shelf and dusted off since like my catechism or some Bible class or something. But, but what we need to understand is the divine community of love, who this God is, who this God that we're supposed to be talking to is, is fundamental to our lives as Christians. Or another way to say that is we can't be real humans until we can love and understand who God is as a divine community of love. So we have to pray to the right God. I mean, that's really practically 
where the, this point boils down. And a lot of us have been praying to the wrong God, you know? We've been praying to a God who in our minds uh, for eternity past was just lonely or bored. Or a God that we read about like in the ancient Babylonian text, the Enuma Elish, a God like Marduk who was kind of sitting back and going, you know what, I need to make something to do all of my grunt work for me. So he made people so he could sit back and live the good life. Or a God like Allah, who uh, was love, but he was like all alone. So I don't know how you can be love, but be all alone. But he made people to basically offload like this burden of love. Another way to say that is Allah needed people to be who he is. But here's the difference. The, The fundamental cornerstone of Christianity is that God doesn't need us. He invites us. So when we are praying to the right God, we're not praying to a God who made us to do his grunt work or who, who made us to entertain him because he was bored or to, to love him because he was lonely or to glorify him because he's a, like a narcissist with a halo. No, we're praying, we're, when we pray, we're interacting with the divine community of love who has conspired for all of eternity to share his love and his glory with us. This is the kind of God that we're talking to. He's a glory giver. He's a divine community of love. And then Jesus tells us in verse 24 what it means to know this God. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you've loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus wants us to be with him. That's, that's it. That's the gospel message. He wants to be with his people. You know, there are a lot of people that you may love that you don't want to hang around. But Jesus says, no, I want, I want you to be where I am for all of eternity, witnessing my glory, the most real thing in the universe. This glory... It was so great that God said in Exodus that if Moses had seen it, it would have killed him on the spot. But Jesus wants us to see it. And and we do see it. We see it right now in a tainted kind of way. Paul uh, describes it, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 13, as like seeing through or seeing a reflection in a glass darkly. So we can see like reflections of God's glory, kind of like looking at a broken mirror, a dirty mirror. We can see like impressions of it. But one day, Jesus says, when he comes back, and it gives us new resurrected bodies and renewed senses and holiness that we're going to be able to look directly at his glory and perceive it and love it and love him. What this means, you guys, that God wants to share his glory with us, it means that your glory, or I'm sorry, God's glory is your destiny. God's glory is your destiny. You're a child of glory, you know? That's where you're meant to live and it's where you're going. That your destiny isn't uh, fear and anxiety. Your destiny ultimately is not uncertainty. Your destiny isn't racism. Your destiny isn't the victory of one political party or another. Your destiny, your hope isn't about, you know, financial security or family or whatever. Your destiny, if you're a follower of Jesus, is the glory of God. 
And it starts with the cross. In verse 1 of John 17, Jesus said, Father, the hour has come, which just means the time for me to be exalted has come. He said, glorify me, your son, so that your son may glorify you. And Jesus wasn't talking about ascending to a throne. He was talking about being raised up and brutalized on a Roman torture device designed to inflict humiliating, grotesque pain on terrorists and criminals. That was the moment of of God's greatest glory. And it's the moment that he invites us to start at. We have to start at the cross. There's no way around it. There's no way past it. We have to start there. And we have to give God, in that place, all of our uncertainty and all of the ways we've tried to control ourselves, glorify ourselves, control our own destinies, and give it all to him and follow him into his glory. So, this God that we're talking to, he's a glory giver. He's a community of love. And the way to know him is to follow him into his glory because we're destined for glory. But practically speaking, what do we do when we think about how to talk to a God we can't see? Just three things. Number one, we need to stop treating prayer like it's an optional part of our relationships with God. It's not optional. Uh, We're commanded to pray in scripture all over, uh, all over in the New Testament. Jesus, when he taught his disciples about prayer, he assumed that they're praying. He he always said, when you pray. He didn't say, if you pray. Um, And in other places in the New Testament, like um, Colossians 4, verse 2, uh, we're commanded to continue steadfastly in prayer. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, we're commanded to pray without ceasing. And here's why. Because uh, knowing God is eternal life. This relational, experiential knowing, and you can't know someone if you don't communicate with them. And I'm not doing like a drive-by guilting or anything. This isn't like Pastor Ryan coming down on you because prayer is hard. I'm just giving you the facts. Relationships die without communication across the board. There's no way around that. It's a simple fact of life. You can't have a relationship with God without talking to him. So let's stop pretending that prayer is optional because it's not. Number two, let's stop acting like prayer is a spiritual activity. And and I know what you're saying. Well, it is a spiritual activity. And I know you're right, it is. But here's what I mean. A lot of us tend to think that what we see with our eyes and what we can touch with our senses, what we can prove empirically, that that is the only lens by which we can interpret reality. And in order to pray, we have to step out of that reality and like squint our eyes and take this leap of what we call faith. But actually, what Jesus is showing us is that his glory is the most real thing in the universe. It's the fabric that holds everything together. It's the wind that's in the sails of creation. It's the foundation of all of space, time, and beyond. So prayer is not stepping out of reality. It's about connecting to reality. It's the reality of who he is, the reality of his love for you, the reality of entering into his glory, the glory that he's been sharing with the Son and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. So we need to 
stop acting like prayer is just this some sort of abstract spiritual exercise. And finally, we need to rest in the divine community of love. That sounds really like abstract, but, but it's actually very simple. See, a lot of people that I talk to about prayer, Christians, they, they say that the biggest obstacle is they don't know what to pray for. You know, they're, they're afraid to ask big because they might get disappointed. They're afraid to ask for something that doesn't seem very maybe biblical or Christian because they're afraid of that, if that's in the will of God or not. But here's, here's the reality, you guys. The Trinity is praying for us and alongside with us. It's really hard to go wrong. It's like we're doing bumper bowling when we pray, you know? So here's, here's where I get this. I'm not making this up. Paul in Romans chapter eight, he talks about the Holy Spirit praying for us in that uh, when we don't have the words to say, he says in verse 26, the Spirit prays for us in groans too deep for human words. And what that means is he takes the core of our prayer. He takes the heart of it and he brings it to the Father and says what we should be saying. He guides us in our prayer. And a couple verses later, uh, in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 34, Paul tells us that Jesus is interceding for us before the Father. Jesus prays for you. And what this means is, it's, man, it's really hard to go wrong. So talking is as natural to human beings as it is to a baby. You know, babies make sounds and, and, and you might be like uh, in your prayer life, you might be totally new to this idea and, and all you can make are baby sounds. You might be like a lifetime, you know, what we call prayer warrior or whatever and just a total expert. I'm somewhere in the middle uh, there. I don't know where you are. But what this means is we can rest. We can rest that God hears our prayers the Father is not this indifferent, uh, kind of frustrated, mostly disappointed God looking at you going, how dare you ask me that? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together are carrying us in our prayer. So let's rest in the divine community of love. And I can't think of a better way to end our time together than just to pray. So why don't you join me? Father, we're grateful to be able to come to you not because you need us, but because you want to share your love and your glory with us. God, what a humbling thing. God, thank you that you've given us this, uh, your spirit to dwell in us, to glorify yourself in our lives, and to invite us deeper and deeper into being like Jesus. God, we need that so desperately right now. We need you to be glorified on this earth. God, we need you to reverse the stain of racism. We need you to remove our fear. We need you to center us on the reality of who you are, not on politics, not on money, not on anything else that falls short of the glory of God. God, help us to be a rooted people. Help us to be persistent in prayer. Help us to love one another well. We ask for mercy in, in every area that, that just we're so uncertain about right now. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who loves us and died for us. Amen.